Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, on our last podcast, we began discussing Jim's first encounters with Marlowe. Now, now, actually, uh, maybe we've been fooling all of you a little bit because uh, Jim hasn't, hasn't actually encountered Marlowe personally yet. It's like they're observing each other across the courtroom. So, uh, uh, but anyway, we're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting to that point. Now, today, what we want to do is we want to continue that discussion with some additional events leading to Jim's person-to-person encounter with Marlowe. Now, as I said last time, there is much to unpack in these early chapters. Now, <clears throat> I can't do this by myself, so to help me do this today, with me in the studio again is my partner in literature, my wonderful wife, Deborah. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here again. Yes. Well, <clears throat> uh, uh, I just want to bring you all up maybe to, to where we are in the program. You know, we have to go back and listen uh, to the programs to make sure we're caught up as well. So, so if you remember the last time I mentioned how <clears throat> Conrad manipulates time and events like a movie director does to create suspense. Well, as we get closer and closer to that person-to-person encounter with Marlowe, uh, we're going to see that Conrad uses the exact same structure. So, so in this uh, in this segment of this book. You're going to see that uh, Marlowe goes back and forth, or not Marlowe, I should say Conrad, who I believe is still Marlowe anyway. But anyway, Conrad goes back and forth, he moves us a little closer, and then he pulls us back, and he moves us a little closer, and then he pulls us back. And uh, so I just want you all to hang in there, don't quit, or don't walk out of the movie, because it is really, I think, uh, the more I read this book, the more I like it. And I hope uh, you are finding it the same way. And by the way, keep liking me on Facebook. The Facebook page likes have gone out, out of like gone out of sight. So uh, I can't keep up with it. So anyway, so in chapter five, um, uh, if you notice the title for these uh, for these segments of the broadcast or the podcast on this book, uh, Marlo does take control of Jim's story. Now we we. Uh, we don't have the the other narrator anymore or the other storyteller. We have Marlowe taking over the story. And uh, uh, so essentially what we're going to do today is we're going to move into Chapter 6. Now, one of the, th- one of the things I think is, is interesting, and, and this is Conrad's unique way of writing, is uh, Marlowe really does take full control of Jim's story by telling us how he happened to appear at the inquiry. And maybe we'll just, uh, if we go to page 41, I'm going to read uh, from the top of that, uh, that page 41. It's just the very end of chapter um, 5, and it's about, I, I call him the, the pink toads guy. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a name for him, but we'll call him the pink toads guy. And, and essentially what, what's uh, happened is um, we know a little bit, 
not all the details, but we're going to know more of the details about the skipper. He's uh, he's trying to run away. The engineer's trying to run away. And this guy was uh, so afraid that I, I'll call him the pink toad guy. He was so afraid that, that, that he was going to get in trouble. He he got to this bar, uh, got in the room, uh, I guess a, a, a bedroom above the bar, drank bottles of scotch for three days, and then got into the gym jams. And, and that means depression. So so uh, uh, <laughs> all he could see was frogs and toads, and he, he thought they were under his bed. And uh, uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> it, it's... Uh, now this this is what Conrad does to us. He tells us all these little stories, and uh, here's what he says. Um, uh, this is Marlowe now talking about the the uh, pink toad guy, who has major depression because he's been on a drunk for three days, and he's afraid to go outside for fear he's going to get arrested. And it says, uh, he, and in fact, there was one part where he did go outside, and he was so drunk he got stuck on the top of a garbage heap. And when they came to get him off, he thought they were going to hang him for what he did with the Patna. And so we still don't know exactly what happened with the Patna yet. So anyway, but at, at the top of page four, not it's yeah, it is the top of page forty-one. It says no, seriously, and this is Marlowe speaking. I never remember being so interested in a case of Jim Jams before. He ought to be dead, don't you know? After such a festive experiment, <laughs> <laughs> drinking, <laughs> drinking, <laughs> scotch for three days. I mean, whole bottles. Oh, he's a tough object. Four and twenty years of the tropics, too. You ought really to take a peep at him. Noble-looking old boozer, won't you? Now, now here's, uh, again, Marlowe is talking now about the inquiry. He says, I had been all along exhibiting the polite signs of interest. But now, assuming an air of regret, I murmured of one of time and shook hands in a hurry. I say, he cried after me, he can't attend that inquiry. Is his evidence material, you think? And this is Marlowe's answer, not in the least. I called back from the gateway. So so here they're talking about the pink toads guy, and they're also talking about the inquiry. Now, if we go down to chapter 6 now, I'm going to begin the very first paragraph there. Um, uh, Marlowe says the authorities were evidently of the same opinion. So in other words, the, the uh, pink toad guy was not necessary. He thought he was more involved. And uh, I guess he does not end up at the inquiry. It says, The inquiry was not adjourned. It was held on the appointed day to satisfy the law, and it was well attended because of its human interest, no doubt. There was no incertitude as to facts, as to the one material fact, I mean. How the patent came by or hurt, it was impossible to find out. The court did not expect to find out, and in the whole audience there was not a man who cared. Now, um, I think that's unique, is they're here, they're having this major inquiry, which is going to, I mean, uh, uh, I think we have to assume we know it's going to affect Jim for the rest of his life. So people don't really care about the facts. You know, they, they care about what? You want to take over a little bit? Mm, they, well, they care more about the emotion of it, you know, the why, and, you know, the emotion of it because... Um, they, they so they were they don't really care to know how the patina got damaged, you know, because in some ways it's impossible to know for sure what happened out there on the on the ocean. Um, so all they're really interested in is is the is kind of like the 
the drama, you know, the, right. the drama, the emotion of, you know, the experience. Yeah. So, so, so they would have, they would have 800 Muslim, you know, spiritual people to talk to, <laughs> you know, what the emotion was. But we don't even know what happened to them yet. No, we don't. We we don't know. <laughs> and so, so uh, uh, if you're if you're if you read the book before, you probably know. Uh, but anyway, uh, no one seems to care. He says, "Yet as I've told you, all the sailors in the port attended, and the waterside business was fully represented. Whether they knew it or not, the interest that drew them there was purely psychological." The expectation of some essential disclosure as to the strength, the power, the horror of human emotions. So I guess there was a lot of emotions tied up with the, with the wreck of the, the Patna. He says, naturally, nothing of the kind could be disclosed. The examination of the only man able and willing to face it was beating futilely around the well-known fact, and the play of the questions upon it was as instructive as the taping uh, tapping with a hammer on an iron box where the object to find out what's inside. So so in, in some ways, I think here, Marlowe slips in another, um, another one of his observations of Jim is, uh, is Jim is willing to face it. He's willing to face the inquiry. And so, so uh, uh, you know, that's why he's up on the stand. And uh, in some ways, he's really taking a beating, you know, on the stand. And so, so uh, uh, you know, it, it is, um, I think, quite interesting here. All right. Do you have any other comment on that so far? Well, just the fact that he, he was willing, and I'm not sure exactly when. We, we know that the others uh, escaped, right, or they ran away. Like, like yeah, the, we know that in a few yeah, more the, pages. Yeah. Oh, oh, sorry about that. Okay, <laughs> That's when, okay. Say, but he's the only one that they're actually putting on, on and he's, he's willing. I mean, I think he, he, some ways there's some courage there. You know, he's right. willing to go to, to go. So now, now that the truth mm-hmm. is out, everybody, the skipper <laughs> runs away, mm-hmm. the engineer runs away, and they actually leave, mm-hmm. leave uh, Jim hanging. All right. So, so now let me just read the top of page 42. And, uh, 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 we we have um, uh, Joseph Conrad. He inserts another paragraph here of Marlowe's view of Jim. Uh, before he gets into a whole other story, he takes us he takes us in a whole other direction. He gives us a little bit, and then he takes it away, and then he goes on. And so, okay, he goes on. This is the top of page forty-two. It says the young chap could have told them, and though the very thing was the thing that interested the audience, the questions put to him necessarily led him away for what to me, for instance, would have been the only truth worth knowing. And so, so it, this is Marlowe's view, but he still doesn't tell us what that is. You know, it's, it's like, okay, you want to go, come on, do I have to keep reading to find <laughs> this out? And the answer is yes, you have to keep reading. All right. It says, you can't expect the constituted authorities to inquire into the state of a man's soul, or is it only of his liver? The business was to come down upon the consequences, and frankly, a casual police magistrate and two nautical assessors are not much good for anything else. And so, so they wanted someone to own up to the consequences of what happened with the patent, which we still don't really know the whole story. We know... Uh, that it ran into something is basically what we know. It says, uh, one of the, uh, uh, he says, I don't mean to imply these fellows were stupid, uh, 
The magistrate was very patient. One of the assessors was a sailing ship skipper with a reddish beard and of pious disposition. Briarly was the other. Big Briarly. Some of you must have heard of Big Briarly, the captain of the crack ship of the Blue Star Line. That's the man. And so, so these are the people on the, uh, I guess, the assessors or they're on the, they're the judges of this inquiry. So, so now what Conrad does is he starts to tell the story of Briarly. And so he forgets Jim. I mean, let's get another story in there. And I think everybody out there listening, this is, this is where I think um, Joseph Conrad actually took a lot of criticism for writing this book this way because he goes back and forth so much and people, people got tired of it. But, the, but yet, uh, this is probably one of the most read books in his time. And uh, he, he did this as, a, you know, as installments in a magazine. So, so anyway, here's, here's Briarly. He's called Big Briarly. And he goes on to talk about him. He says, He seemed consumedly bored by the honor thrust upon him. He had never in his life made a mistake. Never had an accident, never a mishap, never a check in his steady rise, and be seemed to, and he seemed to be one of those lucky fellows who know nothing of indecision, much of less self mistrust. And so, so he's talking about Briarly. He paints this picture of him. This guy is absolutely perfect. <laughs> and as we've been been uh, hearing from the uh, radical Democrats, everything is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the election was perfect. <laughs> Everything happening at the border of Texas is perfect. So anyway, this guy is something else. Um, I mean, I, I think about him when I read this. This guy's a stuffed shirt. Yes, yeah. well, like it says a little bit further on, it says, at 32, he had one of the best commands going in the Eastern trade. And what's more, he thought a lot of what he had. <laughs> so basically, if you keep looking at it, he's basically... He thinks a lot of himself, or he thought a lot of himself. Yes. Yeah. So he, he would what you call, call someone that's really self-righteous. Yes. Yeah. So he he knows he knows what should have happened to the Patna that didn't, and that's why he's on this board. I guess that's why he's one of the assessors. It says there was nothing like it in the world, and I suppose if you had asked him point blank, he would have confessed that in his opinion there was no such another commander. <laughs> in his opinion, right, yes. <laughs> in his own yes. opinion. Mm-hmm. The choice had fallen upon the right man. The rest of mankind that did not command the 16-knot steel steamer Ossa were rather poor creatures. He saved lives at sea and rescued ships in distress and had a gold chronometer presented to him by the underwriters and a pair of binoculars with suitable inscription for some foreign government, uh, for from some foreign government, in commemoration of these services. So, so anyway, um, that's really not a whole lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, but I guess you know, in that that world, you know, it was a big deal. But he saw a lot of himself. It's like, but, it's, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and and what Marlow says there is, I liked him. Although something okay. He, he was acutely aware of his merits and his rewards. Yeah. And then Marlo says, I liked him well enough 
Though some I know, meek, friendly men at that couldn't stand him at any price. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> he said, I haven't the slightest doubt he considered himself vastly my superior. Indeed, it had you been emperor of East and West, you could not have ignored your inferiority in his presence. <laughs> but I couldn't get up any real sentiment of offense. He did not despise me for anything I could help. For anything I was, don't you know, I was a negligible quantity simply because I was not the fortunate man of the earth, not Montague Brierley in command of the Asa, not the owner of an indescribed gold chronometer and a silver amount of binoculars testifying to the ex- excellence of my seamanship and to my indomitable pluck. No, not possessed of an acute sense of my merits and of my rewards, besides the love and worship of a black retriever, and the most wonderful of its kind, for never was such a man loved by such a dog. And so, so he, here again, the, the the I get a little upset when I hear people say, "Well, they don't like Conrad because he writes too much, or he, you know, he's he's long-winded." But that's great writing. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's that's a that's a good that's a description. This man is like he comes alive for me. It's like he's sitting across the table. And I'll tell you, that takes a lot of skill to do that. Yes, he he does. He does. It is. It is. Uh, you, you can really picture him the way he writes about. Oh him. yeah. Oh yes. I can mm-hmm. see the black retriever because yes. I, mm-hmm. you know, I love retrievers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not allowed to have one, but I love one. Mm-hmm. You know, but 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 he was loved by such a dog. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, you know, I guess a man like him would need a black retriever mm-hmm. yeah. you know, to, to to love him. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, uh, um, he goes on to say, no doubt to have all this forced upon you was exasperating enough, but when I reflected that I was associated in these fatal disadvantages with 1,200 millions of other more or less human beings, I found I could bear my share of his good-natured and contemptuous pity for the sake of something indefinite and attractive in the man. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have never defined to myself as attraction, but there were moments when I envied him. Mm-hmm. The sting of life could do more to, to his complacent soul than scratch of a pin to the smooth face of a rock. This was enviable. As I looked at him flanking on one side, the unassuming pale-faced magistrate who presided at the inquirer, his self-satisfaction presented to me and to the world a surface as hard as granite. Now this is, this is the kicker line of this mm-hmm. whole paragraph. He committed suicide very soon after. <laughs> So, so so here's the perfect man. Yes. Sitting in an inquiry, you know, uh judging, you know, poor Jim and but yet he's perfect, but then right after the inquiry he commits suicide. Yes. <laughs> and so why? That should be the big question on all of our readers' minds. So why, why does he commit suicide? Yes, why? And then why does Marlowe include him? You know, it's it's it really you can see he's including him as a way of Looking at Jim, really, you know, right. because because of um, at the very next section, it just says, um, "No wonder Jim's case bored him." Okay, so it, it basically, I thought with something akin to fear of the immensity of his contempt for the young man under examination. Then he says, "But he was probably holding holding silent inquiry into his own case." So, so the verdict. 
must have been unmitigated guilt, and he took the secret of the evidence with him in that leap into the sea. Yeah. So he saw something of himself in Jim, that Jim looked really good on the outside, but he had a, a, a darkness or a, or a secret or you know, some weakness, and, right. and, and uh, Briley, Briley saw it himself. Right, so, so everybody has weakness. Um, you know, we, we just have to face it. I mean, uh, we just had our 47th anniversary. You've been living with Yes, it. we did. <laughs> you've been living with <laughs> You've been living with a flawed man for 47 years. <laughs> you're yes, still we, Well, we and, all are flawed, and, yes. And you're still sticking with me. <laughs> this is really good. So I'm taking you out to dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So so but the, but the point is this is this is really good Conrad because you know, it, why does he write a story like this? We know when we look at Heart of Darkness, we even know when we look at youth, is, is Joseph Conrad, you know, was really a deep thinker about the evils in the world, what causes the evils in the world, and it always comes back to there's some flaw in human beings. And so, so here you've, you've got, I mean, he's going to say some really good things about, um, you know, Jim as we go along. But but here, you know, he's he's bringing Briarly, and not just to, well, um, you know, fool us. He's bringing Briarly into this because he wants to teach us a lesson. And um, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I know we all know that Conrad, you know, he sailed ships and he, you know, he worked in with people like this. And so, but but he created these characters to teach us a lesson, and and that's what's really important. And, and um, you know, it it, uh, it it it. There's something really, really good about Jim, and there's something really bad about Jim. And you could say the same thing about me. There's some. There's a few good things about me, but there's some really bad things about me. Every human being can say that about themselves, and should be willing to say that about themselves. You know. Notice he goes on. He said, uh, "Let's see." He said. Um, if I understand anything of men, the matter was no doubt of the gravest import. This is why he, why he committed suicide. There was something in his life that he knew. And he says, if I understand anything of men, the matter was no doubt of the gravest import, one of those trifles that awaken ideas, start into life some thought with which a man unused to such a companionship finds it impossible to live. I am in a position to know that it wasn't money and it wasn't drink and it wasn't woman. He jumped overboard at sea barely a week after the end of the inquiry, less than three days after leaving port on his outward passage, as though on the exact spot in the midst of the waters, he had suddenly perceived the gates of the other world flung open wide for his uh, reception. So, so essentially what he's saying is, he knows what the problem was with Briarly, but he's not gonna tell us. He's not going to reveal that. You know, it's his secret. It was his right to take it, take it with him. All right. Then, for all of our readers out there, guess what Conrad does to us next? He gives us another story. <laughs> and essentially, uh, for all the all your listeners out there, you know, he's talking about Briarly. Now he's talking about another seaman called Jones. But Jones is going to tell us more about. Priorly. And so so here's where it gets really complicated and you have to just go with it. 
and uh, but but there's still there's a lesson here that he's trying to teach us. He says that yet it was not a sudden impulse. His gray-headed mate, a first-rate sailor and a nice old chap with strangers, but in his relations with his commander, the surliest chief officer I've ever seen, would tell the story with tears in his eyes. So so you know, we're, we're, Jim is now kind of off to the side, and it's now Briarly, the Briarly story. And here, his chief mate, who's old, um, is a tough guy. And when he tells the story of Briarly, he tells it in tears. You know, because he obviously, um, you know, he, he loved the man. It appears that when he came on deck in the morning, Briarly had been writing in the chart room. It was 10 minutes to four, he said, and the middle watch was not relieved yet, of course. He heard my voice on the bridge speaking to the second mate and called me in. I was loath to go, and that's the truth. Captain Marlowe, I couldn't stand poor Captain Briarly. I tell you with a shame, we never knew know what a man is made of. He had been promoted over too many heads, not counting my own. He had a damnable trick of making you feel small. Nothing by the way of he said not not excuse me, nothing but by the way he said good morning. I never addressed him, sir, but on matters of duty, and then it was as much as I could do to keep a, sim, a civil tongue in his head. <laughs> so, so he really didn't like the guy. No. <laughs> but yet he tells the story with tears in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Says he flattered himself there. I often wondered how Briley could put up with his manners for more than a half a voyage. So, so he's talking about Jones now that he flattered himself there. Jones goes on, I have a wife and children, he went on, and I have been 10 years in the company, always expecting the next command, uh, more full eye, says he, just like this. Come in here, Mr. Jones, in that swagger voice of his, come in here, Mr. Jones, and I went. Well, lay down uh, her portion, says he, stooping over the chart, a pair of dividers in hand, by the standing orders the officer going off duty would have done that at the end of his watch. However, I said nothing and looked out and while he marked off the ship's position with a tiny cross and wrote the date and time. And so so essentially, we're going to skip. We don't want to take a lot of time with this. But essentially, he's charting where he's going to jump ship because he knows it's the deepest part <laughs> and they're not going to be able to find him. All right. So so he goes on to tell, tell the story about how uh, you know, Briarly planned it all out. Um, even took some heavy bolts out of the the uh, one of the um, parts of the ship, so he would sink faster. Uh, made his dog go back because the dog would jump in after him, and, and he knew that, and so he didn't want the dog to die. And so, uh, you know, uh, he he just he did it, and they couldn't obviously they couldn't go back for him, and so. Uh, um, anyway, uh, he, he, we'll skip down to page 45 on the Jones telling the story. He says, as soon as my eyes fell on it, something struck me, and I knew, sir, my legs got soft under me. It was as if I had seen him go over. I could tell how far behind was left, too. The Trafail log marked 18 miles, three quarters, and four iron belaying pins were missing around the mainmast. So he took these iron pins out, put them in his pocket so he'd sink. And uh, uh, anyway, let's let's uh, go to page forty-eight. We'll go to all the way to the end. And and really, everybody out there, don't get bored with this. Read through this because it it, it does impact uh, our understanding of Jim. It says uh, the very bottom of page forty-eight. It says um, 
You may depend on it, Captain Jones, said I. It wasn't anything that he have disturbed much either of us two, I said, and then, as if a light had been flashed into the muddle of his brain, poor old Jones found the last word of amazing profundity. He blew his nose, not at me dolefully, I... Neither you nor I, sir, have ever thought so much of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was that was the key. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so anyway, yeah. and I think he's probably getting into the to the part where, um, you know, uh, maybe Jim thinks a lot of himself too. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's what that's what we're going to find out is beginning to really bug. Um, uh, Marlowe about Jim. All right, do you want to make any comments after that? I know you've been really studying this stuff. Well, I think I think you really pretty much explained that. I mean, it's okay. just boy, the idea that, but also that he he was he was very careful the way he planned it because it wasn't just he just decided to jump. He planned it and he left his his uh, special chronometer that was a gift. He and left on the side and his binoculars. He left those there, and special didn't, things. Didn't you know. take the dog with him. He didn't. You know, he was careful about the dog, and and he was planning the course. He was wanting to make sure that they all knew where they were going. That they were, you know, had the course right and everything. It was like setting us, letting everything just, you know, having everything taken care of before he left. So. Yeah, and wrote letters to the company saying mm-hmm. he left the ship with one of the best people right. he could let yes. leave him mm-hmm. with and all yes. that. So all right. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that page 49, I think we, uh, we're, we're going to run out of time here again, but that's okay because we can come back for another, another program. Briarly, um, uh, you know, he, he was bored by the case, but he definitely thinks that, that Jim is being tormented by it. And, and uh, it's by this time we shall all know that the, that the skipper cleared out. This is where we really find that out, page 49. He says, why are we tormenting the young chap? This is the middle of the page, by the way. He asked, the question chimed in so well to the toiling of a certain thought of mine that with, with the image of the absconding renegade in my eye, I answered once, hanged if I know, unless it be he lets you. I was astonished to see him fall in line, so to speak, with that utterance, which ought to have been totally cryptic. He said angrily, why, yes, can't he see the wretched skipper has cleared out what does he expect to happen? Nothing can save him. He is done for. And so so we're going to end on that note today because we are running out of time. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah and I will discuss, uh, we'll, we'll really get there, I promise, to Jim's one-on-one encounter with Marlowe. They actually meet personally. And uh, this is... Uh, uh, right after the inquiry or maybe even during the inquiry. Now you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. That is my favorite place to buy books, by the way, is abebooks.com. You may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore, and of course you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. Now, I'm getting good results from Facebook. Facebook? Not Facebook. It's mm-hmm. Facebook. I feel like I'm in Facebook right now. But anyway, uh, uh, keep looking there. I'll be putting up some new posts related to quotes from Lord Jim. We are in finals week. We're going to be out of class. I'll be able to devote my summer to JBL. So I'm looking forward to that. So until next time, keep reading. Keep reading.
You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.